Hey, hey, hey. Mike Sauter and Mike Martin back with you today for the Regeneration Podcast. Michael Martin, say hello to your adoring fans. <laughs> hello, my adoring fans. Yeah. Yeah. What's your week like? Uh, I didn't catch a, a swarm. Oh, really? You had mentioned that. that I thought I would. Well, they were checking it out. I still could. Um, but yeah, I just, I moved a lot of fences this week, electric fences. Yeah. And you, I, let me ask you about a swarm though. You know, so I, I started a hive just a couple of weeks ago. It was like one of these things, you know, with inflation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why not buy some things you've always wanted that can earn you money. So, uh, I worked on my topsoil a lot this year and bought some, you know, organic amendments and I did a few other things, but this beehive and, um, I, the stuff I was reading said, you know, if we start, if we don't catch a swarm pretty early, you know, in July at the latest, is that your understanding too? Then yeah. we might have to wait until next spring. Yes. Okay. And you might want to think about buying a nuke, which, which is, is a, a nucleus. So it's already, it's already okay. an established yeah. colony right, right. Yeah. with a queen, with a laying queen. And here they cost about 150 bucks, maybe 180 yeah. And that's a great way to start because you, you might even get honey the first year. Some oh, really? people sell package bees, mm-hmm. which is not, a, I don't think it's a good way to do it. Um, and they're usually less money, but you certainly won't get honey the first year. Yeah. Uh, but if you can catch a swarm, that's, a, that's, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. Didn't you say Rudolf Steiner said catching a swarm is the best way? Well, is he, new, well he, let me introduce today's topic. How about that? Uh, today, it's Michael, you know, quite often we have guests, but it's uh, it's Michael Martin and yours truly, Mike Sauter, talking uh, just with each other. We're going to introduce um, people who may never have even heard the name Rudolf Steiner. Uh, probably more people have heard the name, but don't know much about him. And maybe a few of our listeners and a few people out there know more about him than we do. But his name has come up in at least... Uh, 80% of our previous podcasts in yep. one way, shape, or form. And uh, Michael was a, a teacher in a, what some people call a Steiner school, a Waldorf school, but he has a lot more knowledge than I do. So today's format is going to be me asking uh, him some questions about Rudolf Steiner. So let's start with bees, then let's go into the bio after that. Rudolf okay. Steiner on bees. He, he A swarm was best? Well, uh, natural swarming. There's, there's a, a way of splitting hives people do. So you, because... Uh, the bees always have uh, what they call queen cells in the hive, right? Okay. So if you have queen cells, that means it's like an, an emergency break glass kind of situation. And uh-huh. so if something happens to the queen, they make a new queen, right? Gotcha. And, and what happens? So, um, so that's the best uh, way to propagate. Uh, bees is by you know according to, to rudolf steiner and a lot of natural beekeeping people is let them swarm naturally uh-huh yeah um because the bees t- they know which one's the better queen than you do right 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 yeah because you he'll, you'll have you know five six maybe eight queen cells in there the bees know which one's the, the, the best one and so, so when you buy a nuke uh-huh. these bees again the the breeder buy, is taking out the queen. They're forming a new queen. Then they mail that to no. me. No, tell me. So when they form a new, well, they'll they'll split a hive usually, okay. which is not the not the, I mean, not the optimum, but it's a very it's a good way. Yeah, I just to keep in mind what, what you're what you're dealing with, and what happens is 
then so if you split a hive you have a queen there you, you'll you'll split it with some queen cells and then the bees will pick which one to have the queen and usually usually it works hmm. um so it's a kind of artificial swarm you're creating gotcha but it's better if you can catch one yeah, it's I, not I easy. Like that time, not so. easy to catch one. Not easy to catch one. Are well, you more likely to catch it? Like we're we're you could live in the suburbs. We live in the country, and behind us is a lot of. Uh, let me call it forever wild. I don't think it's actually deemed forever wild, but it's there's uh, just nothing goes on in there. There's pine trees and bramble. It's it's. Uh, is it more likely that we catch a swarm because we're surrounded by, kind of more wild? Could well could be. I mean, there's there's a there's some concern in the bee community the scientific community about whether or not there are actually any wild swarms left or wild colonies left huh. because of uh varroa mites and right 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 stuff like that which you know because what will happen is you say you have your beekeeper in your in your your colony is being decimated by varroa they get weak and what happens when they're weak is that you'll have a situation which is called robbing so fair well, could be feral bees could be bees from another apiary they'll come in and rob the honey out of the out of the hive but if they do that and your your hive is sick um then they catch the sickness yeah and they spread it around that way so there's there's some question whether or not there are a lot of any feral hives uh feral colonies left really well yeah but you might you still might catch one from from some I'm going to catch a feral beekeeper. hive. Yeah, I'm going to catch a feral hive and I'm going to catch Sasquatch or something. Yeah, you might. Yeah. Um, cool. So Rudolf Steiner and maybe bees will come in again. Bees will come um, in. Austrian polymath genius in, you know, practitioner in so many fields. Give us a, a background of him. Well, um, he grew up in what's now Croatia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. or And... Uh, German-speaking family. He was uh, his father. Apparently, was a free thinker, and he ran. Uh, he was like the station master of an, uh, the railway. So, young Rudy Steiner spent a lot of time at that rail station, and but he was also very attracted as a kid to the mass, and he served as an altar boy in his local parish. Um, went to school. It was precocious. I mean, he, he was precociously clairvoyant as well i think he was young i mean not a teenager yet maybe eight or ten years old and he saw a, a relative a cousin or somebody who had just committed suicide appeared to him and, and appealed to him for help hmm. and he was just a kid so he was kind of naturally clairvoyant in, in that way but uh he did not go to the gymnasium. He went to the real school, which is uh, the technical school, and kind of came into uh, the study of philosophy kind of naturally, you know, and uh, eventually went to study at university, uh, though he didn't, you know, because he did not, not go to the gymnasium, he had to teach himself Greek and Latin. Hmm. As he, he was not in that trajectory but he was this precocious intellectually and so he does he does that and he studies on amongst other people under franz brentano who's kind of the godfather of modern uh phenomenology 
And I don't know if they were classmates or not, but they were certainly in the same same generation. He, uh, uh, Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology, we of course, say, yeah. you know, was uh, I can't remember if he was a year older or a year younger than Steiner, but they both st- studied with Franz Montano, but though I don't know if they knew each other. Though both those standards certainly knew of Husserl's work and was not too crazy. About it. He wasn't uh, impressed. He was not impressed. He so that's that's clear. He read Husserl and was not impressed. He was. Could you was could you did what do you think he took umbrage with the most? I don't know. The only thing I encountered is uh there are what are called uh discussions, was discussions, conferences with teachers. So he was talking to the teachers of the, the first Waldorf school, uh, like on, at their faculty meeting. Uh-huh. And, he, and he said some kind of offhand remark. He said, you want to do phenomenology, but not that stuff that Husserl's doing. That's not going to help you at all. You Interesting. Know? That's helpful for me to know because I've read both and I wouldn't have picked up. I'm not getting a completely different vibe from them when I read them both. Also, I'm not saying it's the same thing either. You know? Yeah. So and so another so after he, he finished his higher education in philosophy, he one of his first jobs as an academic was not as a professor but as editor of Goethe's scientific writings. That's an education of for yeah. fifty people. Yeah. What? Yeah. And he and so this is for like uh, what's it called? I can't remember what it's called. The 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 prestige edition of Goethe's collected works. Uh huh. And it, I'm sure it, you know, it just changed the way he saw everything. Yeah. So this, so he's there, and this is. Uh, he was born in 1861, so this is late 1880s, probably by right now. And uh, he, this is also the time that the Theosophical Society is making a lot of inroads into European and American culture. Madame Blavatsky. Yes, right, and. Uh, I don't know how it happened. Gets he, you know, he here he is this kind of mainstream academic, credentialed person. Um, then he, I don't know if he gets attracted to theosophy because, because he's interested in everything, uh, and he starts giving lectures at the Theosophical Society in Germany, and there and he's wildly popular as a lecturer. Um, and he, do, and he gives lectures on kind of straight up theosophical kinds of topics like cosmic evolution, stuff like this. Um, it's very esoteric, not Christian at all for the most part. Uh-huh. Because he kind of left Christianity behind, even though he did say that at one point he, later he said, you know, if things hadn't worked out this way, I would have become a Cistercian monk. Right. I knew I was aware of that. Yeah. And... uh so, so he so he gets into this, and if it's interesting, if you read uh, his lectures, he wrote, he published several books, but most of what we have by him in book form are from uh, their lecture notes. But let me stop you. When you say he was a wildly popular lecturer, I've I've read so many of the lectures, and I have to read them like two or three times. And I bet you know most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you why, like, so Berdyaev, you know, or Berdyaev, you and I yeah. both really admire this Russian philosopher. We'll talk about him more. I was reading an autobiography of his. I forget the title, but he had once seen Steiner mm-hmm. lecture. And I record Berdyaev just found him boring, but he probably had a visceral reaction because it was too far out. 
you know, for Brajive in this sense. But like when you said he was wildly popular, who was going to these things, you know? All kinds what, of people. I mean, yeah, the, okay. the, thing, well, the thing is, I remember, so where I used to live in Ferndale, Michigan, there is mm -hmm. the, a branch of the Theosophical Society. And they've been there in, in Detroit forever. But I, go, I went in there and they had some photographs on the wall. And, the, and one of them was from like the 1920s of a, an earlier place where they met. And the, there had to be a thousand people in this, in, in this. It was a picture of the audience at one of the lectures. It was just a, I mean, the, the whole theosophical thing was a very popular yeah. at the time. And it was catching on. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. Uh, there's a movie called Fairy Tale, if you've seen it. And it's about the Collingly fairies where uh, in England around the time of World War I, uh, these little girls had taken allegedly taken photographs of fairies. Yeah, yeah. Right. And in the film, there's an interesting part where uh, uh, the mother of one of the girls goes to this lecture by the, by a theosophist. And there's actually in that one, there's hardly anybody in the audience. But it was a big deal back then. Yeah. So you're saying you know? theosophy was super popular. He was he was popular amongst other people who are lecturing. But you're it wasn't and like it, people were just drawn to him. But like the material was really had captured the imagination of and it was a, yeah. and it was a part of uh the, the what they call the occult revival of the 19th and early 20th centuries right, right. which you know i to, to me that it seems like a a you know a response or a romantic response to industrialization and you know the the industrial revolution and all the things that was. were going on yeah. with that you know people were saying no and uh so another person who was kind of on a, a similar trajectory even they were born in similar times as uh, william butler yates mm -hmm. who also spent a little time hanging out with the theosophists okay. charles williams as well um and uh so he's in that environment and then i don't know when it was exactly but he turned again to, to christianity and he, and he said that he had this profound inner experience of the the reality of Christ and who Christ said he was. He called it a festival of knowledge. He did. He? That's exactly what he called it. I always and, tried to think what he what that meant, like all this stuff pouring into him. Go ahead. And he must have felt that. And yeah. Yeah. and uh so and so around the same time when he was still hanging out with the Theosophists. Annie Besant and Charles W. Ledbetter were trying to make a, make a deal with him because they were they were trying to push Krishnamurti as the new world teacher. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, he was only a kid at the time, maybe he was 20. And they were they were their deal. This is according to the story I've heard. I don't know, I don't know if this is really true, but I, I have a feeling it is. They wanted Steiner to be the John the Baptist in that scenario. And Steiner is balked. He said, no, I think we'll go start my own thing. <laughs> and then he started what's now called the Anthroposophical Society. Yeah, yeah. So it was a break breakaway group. And it was more Christocentric, still very esoteric. But it's interesting. Now, this is kind of controversial. If you read... Uh, Steiner's lectures or books from the early 20th century, or even his uh, his uh, philosophy of freedom. 
they not the philosophy of freedom in this way, but those lectures, it's very uh, characterized by theosophical jargon referring to the masters and, you know, and cosmic evolution, which is, a you know, Prolaya and Manvantara, which I don't want to explain, but it's a big Blavatskyan concept, which is okay. basically it's importing Darwinian evolution into a into an esoteric space. I remember when we talked to Guido, he thought he thought Blavatsky was just put, you know, doing kind of doing the same thing that Darwin was. Yeah. Um, uh, so in the early lectures of Steiner's, a lot of that stuff is still there. And if you look at the later lectures, close to when he died, you know, the, I'd say the last seven or eight years, he died in 1925, last seven or eight years before he died. It's very different. He, all, there, all that theosophical jargon has disappeared. And he's and he's adopted his own language, which is much more Christocentric, right? And uh, but also less filled with jargon in particular, right? And this is the thing. And that's yeah, an incarnation in one sense. You know, I, it's we, a, absolutely. Okay. But the, here's the thing: it's interesting with anthroposophists. I don't know if they're all like this. You point that out to them, and they say, "No, he was always exactly the same. He was always, you know." But but you can see him developing over time. Yeah. I mean, he had these tremendous gifts, you know, and his uh, his insights uh, and appreciation and love for Goethe really comes through. I mean, that's why he called the building. He, he, he was not an architect, but he learned how to be an architect and built this uh, amazing building called the Goetheanum out of wood, carved out of wood. Extraordinary. You can see, I guess, uh, from what I understand, it's still discussed in the history of architecture courses as yeah. a, you know, a marvel of, you could call it, uh, they, they kind of lump it in with art deco, but it's from that time yeah. where it was just a, a new way to do architecture and Rudolf Steiner <laughs> was not an architect. Fascinating. And then that one was burned by arsonists. Am I right with that? And then yeah. the one that stands in Dornach, Switzerland now is not made of wood. It's in cement. And it, okay. it, it's not a very attractive building in my opinion. I don't know what to make of it. It's cool looking, but I'm glad you say it's not it's, attractive. It doesn't to me, it's it. a, I mean, that other one, I mean, the original it was attractive, photographs, huh? it's, it's miraculous looking. Yeah. Let's this, this notion of going from, um, kind of religious theosophical jargon down to the practical don't you think that's kind of what you and i are about here too that we're looking to kind of move in the in one sense the same trajectory that I, I i don't mean to speak for you but sitting here i'm wondering if again you've you've heard me lately i've been kind of singing the song that religion is the disease that jesus came to cure us from mm -hmm. you know this kind of like sitting in one place a church to try and control events on the outside of the church or maybe ahead of it in time, um, you know, that's kind of a default position for all of us. It's not, it's not necessarily what the church teaches, but that's what I'm calling religion. And you and I are both, you know, are both trying to not make it practical. Like we got to find that right language, but that's why I said incarnation, you know, 2000 years, years ago, we would believe Christ came and that like his presence now might be deeply incarnating still into the more practical fields. We're just not doing them. Our yeah. Catholic schools look just like public schools. Our, you know, our hospitals look just like other hospitals. Mm -hmm. But Steiner 
Steiner, his, uh, his hospitals, if I'm right, did not look like other hospitals, his medical practice, yeah. nothing that he did his school. So let's, should we jump into some of those a little bit? Yeah. Well, let's, let's say more. Yeah. I think, you know, what I have, I mean, I've been, I have a stack of 25 books by Rudolf Steiner right next to me. And it's not probably only half of what I've read. Cause I don't know what happened to the other 25, you know, lots of books. That, what happened to the other book? I don't know what happened, but, uh, yeah. For, so for me, you know, I mean, if you read that, a lot of his stuff you read, you're like, I can't make head or tail out of this. How do I apply this in human life? You know, do I just have to take your word for it? And he, he was certainly a person who did not want you to take his word for it. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. So, and this is what I think what's so important about him. So he had all these, you know, very esoteric and you know, to some would might say bizarre ideas about things, but then people would come to him with problems, serious problems. Like what do we do about agriculture or um, email molt who was, the, who funded the first Waldorf school because it was at his Waldorf cigarette factory. It was a, a school for his, the children of his workers because he was so devastated by what happened to Europe through world war one. He who turned to Steiner and said, we, what can we do to create something that won't let this happen again? Hmm. Education, right? So, but the thing is, um, all these things that Steiner, people came to Steiner with problems, he gave them very precise, practical things to do. Yeah. Do, you know, he gave instructions. I keep on thinking of, uh, lately, I think of schools in the same way so that what happened to us during covid wouldn't happen again like yeah. what would what would the education of people look like for things to have you know for people to have handled that differently for our country well, to handle that well differently? I, I do think if he were, were here today he would come up with something different mm-hmm. it would be similar to older but i think it would be a very different thing because he was uh when they came to him for Waldorf education, he was looking at the world as it was, and he didn't want to create something totally new. And he even kept, he said that. I said, I'm not trying to, you know, destroy education. I'm just trying to show how we have education right now, how we can make it better. That's all he was trying to do with that. And mm-hmm. he, he did, you know, and that's the, the thing that's amazing to me with whether it's an education or medicine or agriculture, which I'm intimately involved with or beekeeping or I'm missing a whole bunch of other things. They're all practical. They all work. Yeah. That's, and you can look at anybody else. I mean, no one else has come up with that many uh, insights in so many domains that are practical and they work. Yeah. Guido would say his pharmacology is like a, a treasure gifted mm-hmm. to the world, right? Absolutely. You know that, um, so and this economics, right? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's going to come, that's going to weave through this show many, many times. Mm-hmm. The uh, And we're going to have, we were discussing, we're having our good friend Tara back on soon here, uh, maybe in two weeks, to, spo- to focus specifically on education. But, um, you know, let's do education a little bit first. Give us like a little summary. Like, I think if I'm a listener and I don't know much, we're saying he's so different. He did things, he made them different. Uh, two or three things why that were completely innovative about Steiner's approach to education that I'm going to ask you similar things about other fields. Right. Well, so in, in Waldorf education, for instance, um, he came up with one of the main things he came up with. that was 
you know, practical, but, you know, no one ever expected this was in uh, elementary school to have the students, the children stay with the same teacher through all eight years. Like which, knowing somebody well could suspiciously have an effect on which is <laughs> yeah right. I mean, so it's so practical, right, right. You know, and though I, I, a lot of older teachers do go through all eight years, but not everybody goes. I never did, went all the way through. Um, I did a three through eight because a teacher wasn't working out. I, I took over for. I did a then after did I did six through eight, six through eight, seven through eight, and seven through eight or something like mm -hmm. that. So I had. I, so what would happen, you know, people move on, people get married, people, their lives change. So, so I would be able to do that. And I happen to have a gift. Um, and, and in the place and time and where I was, this is the early 2000s, you know, where you have a lot of uh, boys in particular who are obviously lacking a father in the picture. Mm-hmm. So that would be actually a good time for me to come in there, especially when they hit 12 years old, you know, when they start to get a mouthy and B looking for somebody who knows what he's talking about. Right. So I, I would go in in those situations, which was very healing for, for, for a lot of those boys who didn't have fathers in mm -hmm. the picture. Now, now I, I'm straying a little bit from the model there. So that's one thing he did was have the idea of the class teacher staying with another thing was to have the arts imbue every subject every everything's art, done artistically there's lots of singing recorder playing learning through poetry you know, there was so much uh, immersion in the arts painting etc um lots of it and and, and even eurythmy which is a, a form of movement that like i wouldn't call it like ballet but it's people look at it and go it's kind of like ballet uh developed by steiner and his wife marie and uh so it's got all this stuff but also practical skills like woodworking like knitting like sewing um which are gardening which are yeah. added to the curriculum uh -huh. and the product is and i've seen this happen time and time again is a kid who goes through whether it's eight years or 12 years of a Waldorf education they come out not afraid of anything because there's not an idea of tracking people to be they're this you're the smart scientific kid or you're the you're the musical kid so you just go with the musical stuff right yeah. they don't there's no idea that's part of the the blessing did he address of, that specifically in any writings meaning this tracking thing so uh well it so, didn't tracking didn't exist when he was around right 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 but that's and tracking is really uh it's let's not call it tracking let's call it specialization yeah and if right? you had a curriculum to say we have a curriculum based on the erratic uh eradicating fear that's a big draw to people well fear fear is ubiquitous now you know well that's you know what he's I, a prayer well, i call it a prayer he, he wouldn't call it a prayer of his i say regularly we must eradicate from the soul all fear and terror of what comes out of the future that's yeah, how it starts yeah, yeah, yeah you know because and he delivered that to them during world war one right mm -hmm. but 
And, and so if you look at our, our current model with all this tracking business that goes on, this is because higher education creates lower education in its own image. Yeah, right. And higher education has become more and more specialized and less and less relevant. You know, one thing I've done, I've done like when I worked up at the parish, I would do baptismal prep. And I don't know if it was guided by Steiner, but I found myself, you know, you when you hear yourself repeating things, you know, you're having conversations, but like in each one, I would hear myself kind of going off on something that, and this is all kind of tangential, but um, I would tell parents that like when you, when you have a baby or a child, and maybe it's because of working at the college when I see people coming in, like when I went, when I went to college in 1986, I think half of my friends were undeclared. Now in an incoming f- class of a thousand freshmen, I forget what the numbers are, but they could be less than, oh, less than 50 who are undeclared. And anyhow, I, when all of a sudden I was raising my own children, I've got four children and you'd see uh, other parents and they would have, let's say a son who played with like clocks or a son who played with band-aids. And that, so we we'll use the band-aids one. People would say, oh, Bobby is called to be a doctor. You know, he's going to go for an MDiv and they want to get him in clubs associate, uh, not an MDiv, mm-hmm. you know, an MD. Yeah. But I would always tell people, can we keep those things for the child's sake, vague and up in the air? Just say he loves, he seems to be interested in the healing arts because maybe he's called to be an osteopath. Maybe he's called to be, um, you know, any uh, the thousand different ways to approach health. Or, or but I'm father. getting some of that same vibe with <laughs> Steiner. You know, he wasn't, yeah. he was opening up. He wasn't constricting. Right. And that's the whole, and, and that's part of the gift of being with the same teacher is, and plus you see the kids change over time. Yeah. Right. And you, but you allow them the exposure to all these different domains. Not every kid's going to be an opera singer, but they they can all sing a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. Not every kid is going to be an artist, but everybody gets a crack at painting Mm -hmm. and drawing. And, and in a Waldorf school, probably more, I should have brought an example. Uh, One of the more beautiful things is the children don't have textbooks they create their own book. So Say more. Yeah. And we're going to talk about this when we talk to Tara, so I don't get too much into it. But the idea in what's called a main lesson, which is an extended period in the morning of about two hours, is that first, you know, you'll start with, you know, singing or poetry, you're playing the recorder, working, you're doing mental math just to wake the kids up, get them in their bodies and uh, some kind of movement. Mm-hmm. And then... So say I was teaching a, a block on the Renaissance. So I'm, te- so I, so I'd go out in the morning. So we did all this morning work and then I go, okay, all right, you guys. So yesterday we talked about Michelangelo and his encounter with Pope Julius. What do you remember about that? So the kids would tell me, okay, yesterday we said this and this, and they would reconstruct the, the story that I, I gave to them. So there's a lot of storytelling about Michelangelo and Pope Julius. And then, okay. Then I would take the story to the next place where I wanted to go. Maybe it was the commissioning of uh, The Last Judgment, for instance, mm-hmm. or what, whatever. So, and you bring out all, the, all these human details, which the kids just, you know, they we all love stories. And the kids learn through storytelling. And so after that, they'll have book work. So say the day before I was talking about, and sometimes it's a two-day rhythm, some days it's a three-day rhythm, but rhythm is important. Okay. So then uh, in later grades, it's more of a two-day rhythm. And then, so say we'll go to the book work. And so if the day before we were talking about 
um, Michelangelo and Pope Julius. We might, I might have give a dictation. I might uh, ask the, the kids to, to draw a, a copy one of Michelangelo's paintings or, you know, in, 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 in uh, colored pencil into their books. I could ask them to do any, any number of things. I mean, one thing I, I would uh, often, when I taught that, that unit, I would uh, have them copy out one of Michelangelo's sonnets into mm. the books. Mm -hmm. there's one which he's complaining about painting the Sistine Chapel um, I've grown a goiter dwelling in this den is how it starts <laughs> <laughs> this is bullshit yeah but uh, so that's I mean, and that's an important part of a Waldorf education is using rhythm and using when we used to say we used to say you have to use the night so you tell them that story mm-hmm I'm switching chairs here. This one's and, creepy. But I'm, I'm here, and yeah, yeah. So you're telling that story, and then they can they take it into their sleep, into their dream life, into their imaginative life. Fascinating. And, that, yeah. and it's it's really interesting to see what happens, what, what lights the kids up in that process. Um, but it happens also in the sciences. You know, I would you know, one of my favorite. Uh, demonstrations and i think it was seventh grade we would we would turn the classroom into a camera obscura so the kids would leave say a wednesday afternoon so wednesday after they leave i would get all this black paper and block out all the windows so, and i would have blankets or towels or something to even block the cracks under the door so when i turn out off the lights it was totally black mm-hmm but I had a place on the window where I, I had a little hole I had cut, which I opened up. And after the, I said, just be quiet. And they're like, of course, the kids are like, hey, shut up, stop touching me. But uh, one kid farts or whatever. <laughs> but, but I let their eyes adjust. And all of a sudden they go, wow. So where I did this, our, our classroom faced uh, a, a road a street and you would see like a bus go by but it would look like it was going across the ceiling the opposite way right and they would i said what what, what just happened you know and they'd say can you explain it to us how this is all going on no <laughs> we'll talk about it tomorrow <laughs> uh -huh. but you let you let them you know i used to say self-imposed homework is the best kind so they would be thinking about it yeah and they would say, Mr. Mar, what happens? I said, can't tell you. I'll tell, yeah. you, tell, you, I'll tell you tomorrow. And They say, like, let it cook overnight. That's right. And then one girl would say, oh, I hate when you do that because it's all I ever do is think about it, uh -huh. which is the point, right? Yeah. So, that was, it's a, so it's a really very practical, very human way to go, go about it. Yeah, and the other thing, you know, that's implied, uh, we, when I ran our local parish, I'm a layman, um, for a while, our, our parish, which was five former parishes, asked to work together. No priest in the diocese wanted it. You know, we said, I'm not going there. All the churches were fighting. So the bishop asked me to run it. And, um, but we were so blessed to have uh, the, the wonderful lady, I'll give her first name, Rebecca, who ran the confirmation program. She, I always thought it was the best thing really the parish did, but she was trained in Waldorf education. But, you know, what the young people who went through the program remember uh, is, Again, when you did, it's, it seems small, but when you did an arts and crafts piece, it just wasn't crappy material, right? Right. Um, you used good material. material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and no uh, magic markers <laughs> right and there was rhythm there was rhythm from week to week you know yeah. it didn't feel like we have another unit you know we have to get this material in you um so and you and i this isn't you know this would be even for another one not even with tara but you know some of what you and i how we met is kind of the marriage of waldorf and you know and catholic education looking for more insights cross fertilization there and there's right. somebody you were close to whose writings i read yeah. uh but i didn't know him personally like you did but stratford caldicott who was mm -hmm. really moving on that front yeah and people can look for his books if you happen to be catholic yeah and you're looking for a good introductions of how this could play out in faith formation classes or in schools um the last name caldicott stratford caldicott he's got i think three books kind of on the theme of education yeah, for sure. And that's the sad thing is um, we had been emailing Stratford. He was going to come to your conference, wasn't he? I don't know if he was going to. He, oh. he, he was interested. I don't think he could, he could come. But, okay. but we were actually starting to talk about doing something on education together. Mm -hmm. And then he got sick with cancer. You know, so it was too bad. What do you but, think uh, he was? Were you talking about like a prototype school? Oh, we, we were just starting to talk about it, yeah. but he was what he didn't have any teaching experience. Mm -hmm. So he didn't know the hands on. And I did, you know, and he has he has a lot of great he had a lot of great ideas about <clears throat> bringing beauty into education. Yeah. Right? Very yeah. Balthazarian. Right. Yeah, for sure. And if you look at Balthazar, right, who was steeped in Goethe, you know, and Steiner, who was steeped in Goethe, you know, it's. And I, I think of, of Steiner education as, uh, you know, Goethe's saying that if a man has art and science, he has religion. But if he doesn't have art or science, give him religion, right? Yeah, I think. <laughs> but yeah. but Steiner education really brings science, art, and what Steiner would call reverence. You know, you know, he he would say if you can't bring a child to reverence. How will they ever be able to, to raise their hands in blessing as an old person? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's very, there, I mean, people go come into a Waldorf school for the first time and they think they just walked into, you know, a, this most beautiful atmosphere. And you, I remember the first time I went to one, I was just, you know, blown away out with all this singing of children and all this color. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh this the teachers use colored chalk on a black chalkboard mm -hmm. i mean other reasons for it but it's you're just imbued with beauty mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then you would you know like my own experience in public school and catholic school you know i always <laughs> what's this preparing people for prison yeah. yeah prison or working in an office uh-huh and the environment makes a big it's a there's it's a great a YouTube video. It's like when YouTube was <clears throat> new, but it was one of the first ones I looked up. So uh, two, two Ivan Illich connections with Steiner. You know, one is that uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner was Ivan Illich's grandfather's astrologer, we think. And we know wow. that Steiner was a frequent visitor to the Illich home on the Isle of Dalmatia off uh, Croatia. So that, you know, I, and I, a book needs to be written. Yeah, um, you know why do i vibe so well with illich but i you know a book needs to be written uh or at least you know a major paper on how deep was steiner's influence on illich right that's interesting wow. it is it's very interesting uh the other one would be um 
what you were just saying, schools training us for prisons. There used to be a great little video. I'm sure that I know the title, so I can put it out there. It's called Scary School Nightmare. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's kind of a cartoon character in front of a series of uh, just pictures of random schools across the country. And then she says, quotes from Ivan Illich. But they all look the same, and they but, look like prisons. And one night, the school I went to in, in Detroit, I went through fourth grade. I mean, I had, you know chains on the windows or what do they call it kind of a grill a, a metal yeah, grills yeah. across yeah. the windows uh-huh. why yep. Yep. <laughs> for what? safety 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 yeah let I mean, me ask you 70s. you know we've been saying some good things about waldorf schools but for everything there's the good the bad and the ugly you know uh-huh. um i had a student who oh when she went to school here you know you could tell was going to be one of the most gifted educators she is an educator now but she did some time i think student teaching or maybe teaching in a waldorf school this was on long island and she said you know the parents were nuts and so she she had to kind of leave that school also that you and i mentioned that at a key moment and i think i could go so if you've read maybe 50 books i've read at least 20 and you know in so many papers but um his worldview is the most Christocentric thing, you know, whether you like that or not. You need to know that the way he saw all of history coming, leading to Christ and leading from Christ onto the world of spirit, yeah. um, it was it's the most Christocentric thing. All things go through Christ. Funny. And I think it's been your experience too. I remember talking with you that so many of the schools run from that part of Steiner like the or, or they downplay it or they downplay, downplay it. Yeah. yeah and do you think that really compromises the education can you can you it's you know kind of like taking well, Christ out of Christmas or something well it is um I hope so I, I've done I used to be a teacher trainer I would taught a lot of schools but I, but I was also a, a professor in a teacher training institute for a, okay. for a long time in a I was a mentor and a master teacher. I'd fly all over the country and help people mm-hmm. learn how to be better teachers. Um, I'll never forget, I had this really wonderful experience teaching in a teacher training institute in Ann Arbor. It was a summer program. I loved it. It was a fun job. And uh, then after the core, after the class, you know, I, the students said, you want to come out with for dinner? So I went out to, to dinner with them. And they were, t- one of them I remember was talking, and it's like the hardest thing. He goes, What was the hard thing for you to get used to? I just couldn't get past Jesus. <laughs> and, and just yesterday, I saw on Facebook somebody had, had in, was inquiring, you know, I was really interested in Waldorf education, but they went to a school and it seemed so, so Jesus y. Yeah. <laughs> it was, was Steiner like that? I thought he was, a, he's an atheist. I'm like, mm-hmm. Good God. Um, so funny. But I, the danger, with Waldorf schools, and this is not the fault of, I don't think it's the fault of the education itself or the people who try to promote this education. It just had the world as it is, is because uh, Waldorf is, you know, the the methods of Steiner have not been taken up by the mainstream, which is what he wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't, it it be, so it it becomes, because it, then it's a private school and a pricey one at that. Yeah. So then it becomes a boutique. Yeah, that's my experience. You know, so I mentioned the, like, you could abdicate on some of his more outlandish esoteric beliefs. You know, th- they could run from those. They could 
they run again from the, the Christocentrism. But I think what this student who taught there and some other people, and I think our friend Guido, who taught at a Waldorf school out in California, <clears throat> would say it was the elitism of it, you know. Uh, yeah. and, that, and I was a little protected from that at the school. I taught it was in, in inner city Detroit okay. and the school was um, dedicated to uh, racial integration. I mean, so, so I, I would have, I'd have students, black, white kids, mm -hmm. very few, once in a while, an Asian kid, but people would say, what's the racial makeup of your, of your class? And I'd go, wow. I don't let me count. I don't know. I just didn't wasn't and people were offended in, in higher education that I just couldn't just say I have seven African Americans and right. six. because I I did not think of them my students like that. I thought of yeah, them yeah. in fact as a fear Walter name and a face. <clears throat> if yeah. you're a Walter teacher you you call your class my kids. Yeah. My kids are well I don't think of them in terms of race. Yeah. And boy I had I got into some so I almost came to blows with somebody in higher education <laughs> because uh, when, I, when I moved out of Waldorf education and became a professor, they all knew I was the Waldorf teacher. So that I would get invited to do all this imaginative education stuff. And none of them, they were, none of them knew what they're doing really. Yeah. But they, they like the, we're going to do arts. I said, well, what's your philosophy for doing the arts? We don't have one where he's going to do arts. Okay, good guy. That is so funny. That's and beautiful. and I was in this one meeting with this education prof, and she, I don't, I told her, I said, I don't know, I, I could never tell you. I mean, I'd have to think about it. And I had some kids who were biracial. How do I count them? Where do they fit in, right? Mm -hmm. And and I almost I remember in this meeting, I said, okay, well, I know what I'm talking about, and you don't. Uh -huh. Okay. So I'm, I want to leave right now. And the other person, like Michael, Michael, because I do have an Irish temper when it comes. It doesn't come out very often, but it comes out once in a while. How about if we, uh, you know, maybe showing the microcosm or the macrocosm in the microcosm? Let's do let's do another area. You know, we're not going to get to well, all of them, but like, what one do you want to talk about? Medicine, or what you want to talk? Well, about? I think what's important, and this is this touches in everything standard. Okay, spiritual development, childhood development, is his anthropology, which is very, in one sense, very medieval, but it's also not very medieval. It's very future oriented now. And this is the part that scares people off. So when Steiner talks about, and I'll, I'll give you the simple version of what constitutes a human person, he would say a human person has a physical body, which we all know that, right? An mm -hmm. etheric body, which what the heck is that? He has in an astral body, and people, which another term that scares people off, and an ego. And he talks now in education. He talks about, you know, and that's why the education is based around when these different he calls them sheaths appear or become pronounced in 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 the human constitution. Now it might sound crazy to us. But if you go to medieval philosophy, they said the same thing, but they didn't say etheric body. They said, they said vegetable soul. Mm -hmm. They didn't say astral body. They said animal soul. Mm -hmm. They didn't say ego. They, they might say the eye or the self. Yeah. And was the ego, could we even say the ego was still in its germinal stage you know, at yeah. that time? And, and when we you say know? ego, people will often 
misconstrue that as you know, self-centeredness self-centeredness what's not yeah. what he's talking about at all so if you think about and this fits into a kind of aristotelian um you know I, ideas of the temperaments mm-hmm. right and and earth air fire and water right the elements mm-hmm. so so you think of the physical body we have a physical body now when a baby is born you know, one of the things that you have to do with a child right away is regulate not only their sleeping and eating, right? So it's all about the rhythm, right? I mean, it's stroking the baby, bath time, all this kind of stuff. And that, you would say, is coming to the development of the etheric body, which Steiner says is complete. Well, I shouldn't say complete, but it comes to its apex at around the age of seven. Okay. Now, what we happens- also say we share that with plants, right? Plants have an etheric body, but no astral body or ego. Um, and not, and we, of course, the human person has all those things, yep, but they're yep. not as developed yep. as they as they go through life or from from birth. And then what? So what happens at the age of seven? Their teeth fall out, and that's why in a Waldorf school, that is the time you start teaching reading. Mm-hmm because they're ready for intellectual work. I now, think I've people- told you that just in the country of Russia, not in a lot of favor at this time here in the USA, but it's <laughs> my understanding, you know, for one of the most literate cultures um, in the history of the world, that not just that they produce Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but just the people read and they read difficult stuff. But mm-hmm. that it, it's uh, anathema to teach reading before the age of seven in Russia. Right. Just don't do it. They would say if somebody, if you, one of your numerous kids, Mike, was clamoring to say, daddy, daddy, I need to learn this. Then my understanding is that Russian people will do it. But the image of us trying to like bring phonics. Pushing like it on. Yeah. Two-year-olds. Yeah. It's counterproductive, counterproductive. Because we had to get them into Harvard by the time they're 12. Yeah. 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 And then they lose, you know, I think they lose the gift for poetry because those early stages raising my own kids, I'm thinking of my oldest daughter, Mary, uh, you know, we didn't teach her to read until much later, but it's allowed right. her a very protracted period of uh, uh, gifted with, you know, the the sounds, just bum, right. sum, flum, gum. Yeah, and that, that's given her a lifelong aptitude for poetry, which I'm Nursing convinced rhymes, right? is ruined when you you take that winged bird. You know, Illich wrote a book uh, with a guy, Barry Sanders, not the football yeah. player, called ABC and the Alphabetation of the Human Mind or something. Yeah. But it really gave me this image that when you, when these words are out there and they're flowing, then you can take an alphabet and any sound that comes out of my mouth, you could technically spell it. He's given right. me this image that you've taken that winged fun bird that flapped and you, you know, you put it on the ground, like a science experiment. You've, you've pinned its wings to the dissection. We board. murdered to dissect. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's right there. And that uh, too early when the stage, when the human body is playing with words, let that stage last as long as right. it can. And, you know? and, and Steiner would, would also say that if you, you bring in intellectualization too early, <clears throat> that's going to result in health problems later. That's great. So that's why rhythm is such an important time at that, mm-hmm. um, at that stage in a child's life, which is why songs and nursery rhymes, like you were saying, and all these kinds of things are helpful, but also regular bedtime, regular meal time, you know, because that's what creates health. Yeah, it really does. And if you, and you know, if you, and if you don't do that, you create a nervous child. Mm-hmm. Nervous child has, you know, be, becomes a 
magnet for for sil- illness and sickness and disease even yeah. right you think about you know you can i can imagine what steiner would say about online schooling but uh <laughs> so that's one thing so so that happens about this age of seven where you bring intellectualization in now with more abstract thought and then this is all there in pha <clears throat> too in one sense right it is you know, yeah work play is the work of the child Mm-hmm. No, they threw him out of the window too. Um, then, what? Then comes the astral body, which is, you know, when that happens, fourteen, thirteen or fourteen, right? And they, <laughs> all of a sudden, girls, check it out. I didn't know we had girls in this room. Where, where they come from? Yeah, right, yeah. right. That's the birth of the astral body. Mm-hmm. That's what we share with animals, right? Yep. It's the desire body, right? Mm-hmm. But if it, if you don't, if you have a weakened etheric body. When that thing comes in, it hits the kid. And again, you know, you, 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 you want to strengthen each one of those things. So say you, as, you as didn't you complete the sentence. So if you have an undeveloped etheric body um, and the astral body comes, what does it do? Well, it's like you have it, it holes. Just, it doesn't it. have a proper container. They become their hormones or something, right? Yes. Yeah. And you get no buffer to contain that right there's no wags the dog yeah and it's and and of course then they that's also a time when children get in interested in drugs and stuff like that too right yeah yeah which fascinating and and of course and uh then the birth of the ego which comes after that after the astral body what age do they typically associate with that well um, really, I would say 21, right? Okay, yeah. But as as the child or as a person is developing, you you know you go through these things, you know, and they're all present at the same time. But but the one of one or another is accent, accentuated or more prevalent at a certain period, mm-hmm. right? Um, and th- that's just very, again, it's it might sound esoteric, but it's very practical. It is. It is. It is. Right, and he's not the only one. I mean, uh, Maria Montessori. She saw a lot of this. Yeah, she did, and and she based all of her insights about when what things are are age appropriate based on dentition. Mm-hmm. When so she did too. Yeah. So the, okay. So I must teeth, not know enough about her. come in at one, yeah. right? Uh, they learn. Child learns how to walk at one. Mm-hmm. Right. The, that movement to upright is important. And they learn to speak. Takes a while, right? And when, yeah. do they, when does a child now? Here, when does a child first say "I"? I'm guessing. Boy, me. They can refer to themselves as like me, Aiden, seven years old. Or is it earlier? I think it's, it's earlier. It's, yeah. Well, you, Steiner put it, and and of course, it varies. Is around the age of three. Okay. Right. Which is a very interesting development, but people weren't paying attention to stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then the ne- the second dentition, when they lose the baby tooth, then <clears throat> the loss of the twelve year molars, which is when they get sassy, right? The twelve year yep. molars, yep. and yep. then they call them wisdom teeth for a reason. When do those come in? Thirteen. 14, 18. 15. Oh, see, I don't even 17, know. 17, 18, 19. I yeah. must have skipped that. Uh, those series and, of lectures and, that, and, and it's interesting. There's a guy who knows a little bit about Center, but I don't, he doesn't use him, but he's an Irish Canadian educator named Kieran Egan. Mm-hmm. 
And he kind of uses the same thing, uh, but he talks about what kinds of understandings are available to children yeah, at these different yeah, stages. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, so these are really I, very practical, but enormously useful things. Don't you think that like in somebody's reading of Steiner, you, that same stuff is the biggest put off, you know, but I would encourage people. So my experience reading Steiner is obviously I approached him through education. I think I saw the shortcomings yeah. of the Catholic school system as it was kind of operating. I was looking for variations, you know, like, why can't we be unique or do something that isn't so stupid, uh, rigid? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like six to the half dozen, you know, everything. Yeah. But um, so I just, I didn't know much about him, but I started reading something. I did see that, you know, you wouldn't do this until the baby teeth had fallen out. And that can be a real put off, but I'm going to encourage people stay with it for a while. You know, then it starts to make sense. As you say, like you kind of see, you get a feeling that he's seeing connections maybe that we didn't see. Then the flip side of that is then some people, they start to say that this guy is not full of shit. Then, yeah. um, then they, but they can turn him into a God too. Right. And that's the, uh, well, it's the uh, other side, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and you got to you got to steer your own boat. You've said many times, like Steiner did not ask for, uh, like worshippers, um, no. and he wanted he wanted to give people the tools and the seeds to think those thoughts through themselves. But you and I have both met people who just uh, kind of live a life as if, like Steiner says, are the two most important right. words. Yeah. yeah, we used to make we used to, <laughs> when I was a Waldorf teacher, a few friends of ours, mine, we uh. We had two games we would play at faculty meeting. It was uh, we had a bullshit card. Like people use enough anthroposophical jargon, and you filled up your bingo card, you could yell out bullshit. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> which would piss people off. Uh, and we were also said we Steiner says because you get a lot of Steiner says people in anthroposophy or Waldorf schools, and we would we would get sick of hearing this. And we'd say Steiner says, put your hands on your head. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Steiner yeah. didn't say right. Yeah. Uh, that, that just goes to the fact that like <clears throat> when people say they're not religious, you know, this is Chestertonian, but they're going to turn a religion. They're going to make a religion out of the nearest out thing of something. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the, with, with Steiner. I mean, what's he, like you said, I mean, he told people, don't take my word for it. Yeah. Try it out. See if it works. Yeah. Which to go back to beekeeping, there's a great passage in his book on beekeeping, which I don't know where if I brought that one down <clears throat> where uh, Mr. Mueller, Herr Mueller is, you know, is giving Steiner some, some trouble because uh, when Steiner did this in the early 1920s, the modern beekeeping methods had just been in, in effect for a little while, you know, 20, 30 years. And he said, you know, if you keep doing it this way, it's going to end up with, you're going to end up with sick bees. It might ha happen tomorrow, but it'll happen. And Herr Mueller was saying, well, we're having such good, you know, honey, honey, production and this and that and he said yeah i understand yeah I, and i think in the short term you will have great honey production but do me a favor check back with me in 50 to 80 years we'll see who was right yeah down and to the day huh? yeah he called it on yeah. what, what happened with colony collapse disorder and varroa mites and uh -huh. you know he was right on the money yeah and even uh with the varroa so people started treating for for varroa right away you know, like, <laughs> and of course it took 20 years and then some really insightful beekeepers who weren't out necessarily knew about Steiner. They said, you know what, if we would have just left it alone, the bees would have taken care of this problem by now. 
Uh, By our intervention, we made it worse. Yeah. We know that's true in other areas, you know, that things that would have taken care of themselves. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the ringing cedars Siri out of Russia? I don't think so. It's it's really fascinating. You'd like it. I don't know what to make of it, but there's this lady, her name is Anastasia. There's this author, Vladimir Migra, uh, who just says he met this lady. It's fictionalized or something, but she just kind of, uh, you know, there's these people from Eastern Europe, like, um, Oh, there's several others I could name. I'm trying to think of who I've been reading recently. But these people in Eastern Europe who just kind of walk out of the woods and they know stuff like Steiner. Mm-hmm. But this, uh, this he, so anyhow, this Anastasia, this lady who lives in the Tyaga and seems to know stuff. Uh, she, she was talking about beekeeping in a chapter. Maybe there's 13 books in the series. I think it was the first one. But I'd read Steiner on bees, but she was saying, and I don't know if it's in Steiner. She said that bees hate sharp corners. Have you come across that in Steiner's? So she said, you know, they love logs, beehives and logs. She goes, but if you bought like a beehive, like I bought, and I admit to not having done this, she gave me the impression that we should put like Sculpey clay in the corners, that bees just do not like square angles. But I, I love, the more you read Steiner, the more I just love absurd tips like that. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Um, but somebody I, could say like, uh, bees are terrified of that stuff. You know, like Temple Grandin, those great books she wrote, being autistic, that she goes like, cows would find this, terrifying and she revolutionized it this lady said you know bees hate right angles uh makes sense i mean yeah. I, I, there are plenty of right angles in my in my beehives but okay yeah but some people there's a woman named ruta hollem uh-huh. who does great work with this and she does not use langstroth or square hives or okay. rectangle she she goes she goes back to the the old skeps which okay. when, when they used to make them out of, of straw okay and she she has modified things. She has a, she does beautiful work. She she uh, lives in England and does great things. In fact, you know, for people listening or watching right now, you what a great thing to check out would be this documentary. It's about four or six hours long. It's long. It's two parts. Is uh the challenge of Rudolf Steiner. And if you break it apart into the component ones on YouTube, there could be like 13 hours, right? Oh, yeah, because they so have the documentary was the best. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So find them all. You know, I've watched, I think, uh-huh. all of the longer versions, you know. And it's, it's absolutely worth watching. Yeah. And you get a real, and I think it was a great presentation of Steiner. There, was a, there have been some really horrible documentaries done on biodynamic farming, which may make it look like, you know, a a fruitcake farm, just yeah, nuts. right, right, right. But the the guy who who put that challenge of Rudolf Steiner together, he talked to people who work in every domain of Steiner's work, in medicine, architecture, finance, uh, farming, education, etc. You know, and you get a real sense of not only the the contributions of a Rudolf Steiner, which are immense, and I don't think, I don't think there's anybody who can even compare. No, in one sense, you know, so again, I don't want to put words, Tara, uh, Tara Teak, you know, and Guido, I'm just saying like really smart people, like Tara saying like Steiner is kind of like saving her faith right now. Right. So here's somebody that, you know, our listeners can listen to a previous interview. Uh She'll be back on. I met her through writings at Front Porch Republic. Again, like I mentioned how we met over your book, Michael Transfiguration. But, um, you know, I've always read just kind of weird stuff. But here, you know, I also see people for whom they weren't necessarily drawn to the kind of the far out, but they're, you know, if you're feeling dried up and desiccated in this world for a very intuitive, very smart person, our friend Tara, you know, when 
in the wake of COVID and everything, where it seemed like everything was falling apart, she was, she's just, and it'll be great to talk to her about this, but she just feels like um, it's therapeutic, you know, that mm -hmm. you, you read somebody who sees connections between things, you know, the whole world is dividing things. Um, but you see somebody yeah. who weaves connections in a very intuitive, I'm going to say, you know, a very feminine brain, very gifted kind of right part, the poetic part of the brain. Uh, Steiner, reading him is difficult as it is. Uh -huh. People find it healing, right? And again, Guido Preparata, who was trained at just, um, just elite schools, didn't know Steiner from a hole in his head, but just started reading it and recognized the genius in it. Yeah. You know, some of it's kind of nuts and tough. But um, so it's not just that people who are raised in Waldorf families and people who are kind of vaguely hippie-ish uh -huh. uh, and everybody can say, yeah, that's pretty cool that they use like nice fabrics and so forth. Um, it's to say most people that I know who do anything from Steiner, they had to walk in kind of cold. Like I had nobody to introduce me. I just had heard the name and I wondered what the whole thing was about. And again, my, my gateway drug, a very good one was uh, Owen Barfield. And I'll mention again that, you know, of the Inklings, to me, Charles Williams and Owen Barfield are far more interesting than Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, but not everybody feels that way. But a Barfield, C.S. Lewis, I believe, you know, was quoted as knowing that he was in the presence of an intellectual superior around Barfield. Barfield was just so brilliant and wrote these, you know, crazy, wonderful books. But um, he said, you know, and, and everybody, everybody else, they're afraid of Steiner, who, who like mm -hmm. Barfield. That's another whole phenomenon. The people who like Barfield, who want to like pretend. Uh, Steiner you know, never they, existed. Yeah, I never yeah. met the man. I yeah. met the man. Um, but the, uh, Barfield said, you know, in somebody saying, like, how does your work relate to Steiner? I think he was offered the metaphor of like a bucket from a drop, you know, that he was a drop in a bucket. He said, no, a, I'm a drop in a gushing geyser of water, mm -hmm. you know, and so I can't process that, you know, but it seems like the more Barfield read, you know, and I'm trying to give people entrance points, Owen Barfield to Rudolf Steiner, the more Barfield read the more he just thought it was bottomless, you know? Mm -hmm. I uh, think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, and I, that's, uh, I mean, that my own experience, right? I, so here, I, here's a little personal anecdote. So I left Waldorf teaching in 2007 mm -hmm. and I'd been doing, practicing biodynamic gardening and for, you know, 20 years at that point. And I was, uh, I was kind of mad. <laughs> so I was protesting. So I, I, so I didn't, I wasn't reading Steiner. I didn't, wasn't doing any Steiner kind of stuff. Why were you mad? I think I missed it. I, well, cause I had a, my, my parting with my old Walter. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So you're kind of pissed at the whole world. I was yeah. pissed at the whole world. Yeah. But it was, um, I guess it was, maybe it was working on my dissertation and I remember realizing because I, I was because there was a lot of stuff on sophiology in my dissertation, which was not part. I was not trying to write sophiology. I was just writing about 17th century uh, Protestant mystics, and and there was a lot of sophiology inhabiting their stuff. And I said, "Wow, you know what? All the th th things you're talking about, I would not have any insights into." Had it not been for my study of Rudolf Steiner, yeah, interesting. Then I then I realized I was kind of I was like, wow, the way I think is so formed in a certain way by my my relationship to Rudolf Steiner and being a Waldorf teacher and all this other yeah. stuff. So I said, all right, and then that's why by the time well when I wrote the submerged reality and transfiguration, 
in fact, especially in Transfiguration, there's a lot of Steiner in that book. Yeah. Because I I had accepted <laughs> that my my relationship to Rudolf Steiner. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what I mean? I, ha- I yeah. think I had to distance myself from him. Oh, sure. You know, and from the whole movement just to, to see, see who I was. You know what I mean? Like, Do you think some people distance themselves from the Catholic Church and then they see <clears throat> the Gospels clearly again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I could go back in with not yeah. being an acolyte or something, right? right? right, right not being right, a devotee, right. but... But I mean, certainly somebody who really, you know, appreciates yeah. what Rudolf Steiner did for me. You know, another book. another entrance point, I think, you know, there's a number of. Uh, oh, I don't, I, to be honest, Michael, you know, I've gotten so many nice comments about this podcast from people who join like the YouTube channel, uh, Regener- the Regeneration Podcast YouTube channel or this podcast uh, when they sign up to join quite often, they'll leave notes and people are very, it's very flattering. But um you get a sense a lot of them are kind of familiar with maybe what we'd call the Catholic worldview or, you know, or certainly Christian, but so another entrance point for some people could be, and this book will come up a lot in the name, but Valentin Tomberg's, you know, meditations of the tarot, because we had mentioned von Balthasar, right. You know, and still, I don't know if von Balthasarians want to run from this connection, but you know, von Balthasar's afterward to this very esoteric book called meditations of the tarot. We need to know that Valentin Tomberg, was, you know, in one sense, the heir apparent to Rudolf Steiner in the anthroposophical movement. And then he he uh, got baptized uh, and converted to Catholicism. And then he wrote this book. But again, that book, you know, I worked in a Trappist monastery. You mentioned the Cistercians. Uh, heavy hitters amongst the Trappist monks, names Basil Pennington, Thomas Keating. Those are some of the best-selling monastic authors in the 20th century. Both of those have dust jacket blurbs saying the equivalent of, this is the most amazing work written since the 12th century. And what they mm-hmm. mean by that are the highlights of, say, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. So that's that's mm-hmm. high praise, high praise yeah. indeed. And so by playing with that book, you get to see a mind like von Balthasar. And I think you and I both agree. We know that Pope Benedict was exposed to this book, mm-hmm. how deeply he read it. And so John was John Paul, Paul II. II. Yep. But um, so you'll see somebody who knew the whole Steiner and corpus and how they they distilled it. They kind of left the movement, but still how influential oh, yeah. Steiner was, you know, indirectly through Tomberg, I'm, unlike these uber Catholic Trappist monks. Yeah. You can't. Yep. And I von mean, Balthasar. Yep. To, if you know Steiner and you read Tomberg, you see it's all over. It's all over. Yep. It's all yep. over. Yep. Yeah. Um, fascinating. So uh, tell me again, like, so I'm trying to think of like entrance points for people too, who might be somewhat interested. What, what would you recommend for people? Certainly the challenge um, of Rudolf Steiner can't say enough about that. I think that's a great, that. in, that's a great basic entrance. You'll, yeah. you'll see the, the range of things he, he was doing. We hope to have a lot of those people on this podcast over the course nice. of the yeah. years. Yeah. Um, but depending on your interest, I think the easier things to read are the more practical things. Yeah. Like his book on agriculture is, is challenging. It is, it's, his more of his his sense of humor and personality comes through in it. Yeah. Same thing with the, with the educational stuff. Uh-huh. And I think his book, The Kingdom of Childhood, which is a really easy book for people to to get into his thought and see what what, what he's getting at. Yeah. Um, also, I think that when I was starting to get into him, the, the first book that I thought was really comparatively easy to read by him. There's a book that's very little read. It's called The Redemption of Thinking. Okay. And it's about Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. 
which is a that's a great I'll book. I'll have to read that. I've never, yeah. You know, I think I actually think it's a very good entrance point, despite the name that could appeal to people's egos or like Jungian inflation. But you know, the book called How to See Higher Worlds. Um, there was two copies in my local state university library, but it's very sober. I, I told you how like Trappist monks I know read it and said, oh, it sounds very Catholic to me. It's just so yeah. sober because he, Steiner pulls no punches. You know, and the way I would describe what is a higher world to him, it it occurs to me whether there's a reference to this in the book or not, or it was just a kind of an image I got that you could have like DuPont Plastics Corporation make a plastic seed that looked exactly like a sunflower seed, right? right. And, or, or something, you know, and you could have, you could have 500 of those seeds on the table. 10 of them were plastic. And you get a sense that you practice these simple things in that book, How to See Higher World. And Steiner could go out there and tell you which ones are the plastic uh, ones really easy. Which just means it's how to see this world. Yeah. Yep. How does, or, or is one of our <laughs> yeah. favorite words, how to see the real. How to see the real. Yeah. Right. Because um, that's And he's going to tell you that, like, you're not doing any of these exercises without um, seven steps in kind of moral work, becoming a better person. You know, so that this right. doesn't go to your head. People don't know the dangers of that. In fact, uh, Tom Berg's work, The Meditations, you know, he has big mm-hmm. warnings against the dangers of inflation when you go into yeah. this stuff. But uh, Steiner, I think he was doing the world a favor because he talked about this stuff in such a grounded, real way. You know, for example, he mm-hmm. would say, you know, that he must have seen things. So if I told I've where I'm sitting now, I've been in with students that I think it's interesting to say in order, you know, one exercise he'll give is to say, look at growing things. Um like maybe daffodils bursting out of the ground in early spring. Um, and he'll say, now think of the feeling you get when you see a sunrise, when you do this exercise. And he's trying to open different faculties. Makes mm-hmm. perfect sense to me. And I've done yeah. a lot. And that's um, you can tell this is from being grounded in phenomenology. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he'll say, like, you would think then if he's going to say, now look at dying things, you might think of a sunset. But his answer is no, you think of a moon rise. You know, that, so you watch dying things that are decomposing and then you, mm-hmm. you feel the feelings inside yourself as if you were watching a moon rise. Right. And uh, so this is how somebody who was a clairvoyant can help kind of lead us uh, to, to perceive more. I think well, your book, into, to intuitive thinking. That's what he calls it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. your book, um, the, uh, oh, your first, oh, this emerged reality. You know, I think when you're talking about von Balthasar and you talk about Steiner in that book, a common theme for you, and I know it's in all your writings, is again, is to see more, right? To raise the levels of perception, right? You know, that know uh, when we had Therese uh, Shaker on, she she was mentioning, you know, this most simple image is, um, you know, colorblindness mm-hmm. that, you know, some people can perceive more. And, you know, once we realize that maybe some people, so the people who can see color can perceive more than the colorblind, the mm-hmm. people who perceive synesthesia, these connections. Yeah. Um, Steiner's just trying to say we can all raise our level of perceptions. And is that is that crazy uh, or is it just prudent and practical? I think it's practical. I do too. Yeah. 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 Final words, my friend. Uh, final words. I mean, we must eradicate from the soul all fear and terror of what comes out of the future. We must acquire serenity in all feelings and sensations about the future. We must look forward to whatever comes with absolute equanimity. And we must think that whatever comes is given to us by a world direction full of wisdom. It is part of what we must learn in this age, namely to live out of pure trust without any security in existence, trusting in the ever-present help of the spiritual world. Truly, nothing else will do if our courage is not to fail us. 
So let us discipline our wills and let us seek the awakening within ourselves every morning and every evening. That's awesome. When COVID was first kind of descending on this world and the associated madness, somebody posted that online. Could have been you. Probably you saw was. it many places. <laughs> it, was, it was the most poignant thing at that mm-hmm. time, right? I, just it's, wishing it's people medicine. could look at this. Yeah, look at it. Look at this world without fear. And with, it's medicine for our times. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. We'll thank see you. you next week. And yeah, um, thank you listeners for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. Have a good week. Bye, friends. <laughs>